This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books and African American Studies channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Ari Barbalat, and I'm honored and blessed to be in dialogue today with Elizabeth Drame, Tara Adams, Veronica Nolden, and Judy Nardi. They are the authors of the new book, The, Resist- the Resistance, Persistence, and Resilience of Black Families Raising Children with Autism published in New York by Peter Lang in 2020. Thank you for your time today. I'm extremely grateful. Thank you, Ari. Thank you. you. We're happy to be here. Yeah. (laughs) To begin, please tell us about yourselves. Where did you grow up? My name is, uh, I am Tara Adams. Um, I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, have lived here all of my life. Wonderful. And my name is Liz Drame, and I grew up in Chicago, Illinois, and uh, moved to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, uh, about 20, a little over 20 years ago. Wonderful. And I'm Veronica Nolden, and I was born and raised here in Wisconsin and Milwaukee um, all my life, yeah. Wonderful. It's a delight to be with you. Thank you for your time. And thank you for everything you sacrificed to make this book possible. Of course. Thank you. What inspired you to write this book? What do you hope readers will gain from it? My son inspired me. Um, um, I needed help. A lot of persons that um, I had, I previously not known of anyone um, with autism. Um, in fact, I had not heard of it before. Um, so I was interested, of, of course, with getting help and learning um, how to help him. Um, I would hope the readers would do the same, look for information that would help them with their loved ones um, and enlighten their own thoughts and how to um, move forward with dealing with the loved one with autism. Um, <clears throat> what inspired me was, again, piggybacking off of, um, uh, of, of Tara, um, I'm inspired by my son, uh, and now my daughter, well, she wasn't born at the time, or was she? Yes, she was, never mind. Um, uh, I'm inspired by my son, um, because I also did not know much about autism, um and you know thinking back about how this book even began it was long before my daughter was born so that's kind of how it all began um and I'm all over the place with this but um just thinking about society and how society has treated children with autism or adults with autism. Um, that's what inspired me as well. Just having people to understand and know what it's like to um, have autism, to live with someone with autism and understanding the whole dynamic of school, healthcare, um, just, just society in a general um, was also my inspiration. I just wanted to get the word out there um, and so did the ladies that the beautiful ladies that are on this this um, podcast right now, we all wanted to um, help others understand um, what autism is 
what it is to have autism, what it is to live with someone with autism, and what it is their duty um, in this lifetime to be respectful, to be um, understanding of the entire dynamic of autism and the families that live with it. Um, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, and I, I very similar to Veronica and Tara, Tara for me. Um, for me, I do a lot of work in the academic space, uh, university space, research space, and it's very dominated by white perspectives and you know white researchers doing research and and coming up with specific ideas of why things are happening the way they're happening in communities and specific ideas for solutions that aren't necessarily always culturally relevant for the communities. And so, so for me, um, you know, and also I think the important pieces is that, you know, I, this book for me is like challenging whose knowledge uh, is considered valid and expert uh, because for me, the knowledge of parents, particularly black parents who are living, raising children with autism is highly expert. But when you, when we started to examine the experiences of the co-authors raising children um, with autism, and then also talking to all the families that we talked to, it was very clear that people just don't value the knowledge that um, black parents bring to conversations in schools, to conversations in doctor's office, to, to conversations in therapy spaces. And so for me, the, the importance of this book is to really challenge whose knowledge and is it can be considered expert. But then also um, there's a lot that black families have to offer to the fields that they that they that they are raising their children in. And doctors can do things better. Educators can do things better. Administrators can do things better. Uh, than what they're doing currently, than what some of them are doing. I don't want to paint a broad brush and say that everybody's doing things wrong, but um, they can do things better. And if they and they if they are open to learning from parents, they can actually do things very well with the the, the people that they're trying to serve. So so for me, this book is that opportunity for us to kind of put our knowledge into the spaces where people are are not necessarily considering um, us to be expert. What can mental health services providers do differently to respond to Black clients? What are they doing wrong? What are they doing right and well? What are they doing that Black families appreciate? What are they doing that Black families disapprove of? Mm. So so um, I think, you know, the, the other questions that you were going to ask about the primary findings and sharing specific testimonies, we can we can ask those questions too first. Um, but I think the biggest finding that we found was that, um, at least for me, that there's a lot of opportunities, um, to address the mental, to address access to services, um, particularly when someone comes to say that they, they, their child, they want their child to be evaluated. They want your child to be considered for a diagnosis or they're, they're coming with um, their child because their child is presenting in a certain way and they need some support. Um, I think one of the things that we found was that people weren't listened to initially and over and over again, they weren't listened to. And once that happens once or twice or 10 times over the course of many years, it can it can cause a cascade of negative effects, not getting access to intervention right away, not getting access to specific specialists, not getting access to specific school spaces that work well for our kids. I mean, all of those things are things that um, that that could go wrong if people aren't listened to. That that piece of just believing parents when they say that there's something going on. And then actually following through and 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 giving them access to the supports. That was something that kept coming up as a big problem, and a big area of opportunity. But I'll let I'll let um, Judy just joined, and I'll let Tara and Veronica jump in. 
Um, I was going to say I would agree with what Liz says. I would also like them to know that when you bring your children, a lot of the uh, things that you hear at your children are just bad. You know, instead of there's a diagnosis, there's so many other things, and that's what they're, they're led to or kind of make you believe anything is wrong. They're just bad. They just need discipline or like you're as a parent, I'm probably not doing the right thing. Um, I, I think that was very um, important for me. I think that um, what can be done differently um, is um, acknowledging the parents' knowledge of their own child, the child that's mm. in their presence uh, for most of their day um, when they're not at school, um, mm. acknowledging that the parents are doing everything possible to to bring forth information to them. And when they feel, um, you know, the doctor's not listening, you know, understand that every family has a different dynamic. Every family is different. Um, not coming to the to the parents saying, okay, well, um, well, this is what I think it is. And we're going to medicate your kid, you know, being the first thing you say. Um, I feel like that's, you know, jumping the gun. I think, you know, finding out specifically what's going on with the kid, giving parent the actual resources they need um, to find out what's going on with their kid um, and not taking what um, the parent is saying as, oh, it's just, you know, they're just, they're just being overreacting, you know, overreacting. They're overreacting on what they feel is going on with their kid. I'm a doctor. I know exactly what's going on. Yeah. You know, um, I feel like um, what they have done, though, differently is there are some providers who are trying to listen, trying to, you know, ask more questions. And, and um, but then there are some providers who are quick to want to diagnose a kid just because, you know, for whatever symptom and they're trying to be on board with what's new right now you know what I mean and I don't know I really don't know how to explain that but um I have a story about when was doctor's appointment and the doctor was like oh I think he has autism just so quick to say that just because it was something that was coming up you know in the news and it was something that that was new to the field of um, of the new of 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 medical and in the schools, and it was like, oh, she just was so quick to say that when that wasn't the case with him. He definitely had ADHD, but having autism, he did not have. And I think it's just um, what they need to do. Also, is just find out, do their research. You know, talk to more parents. Um, sit down and listen to the parents. And that's the biggest thing is listening and not jumping the gun. You know, going back to that listening piece, it, I mean, it, it's so important, but they also, they also have to like confront their, their own biases because they have specific ideas that they're not aware of that are, that are influencing them to look at black children in a particular way, to look at their behavior in a particular way. I mean, we told so many, we told stories of so many parents and, and families trying to get their support, support for their children and, and the schools or the doctors seeing something else and seeing something else that was really negative, you know, like, like, uh, you know, one of the kids uh, changed schools and she was in an inclusive environment and she was doing very well. And, and then all of a sudden she's in this new school and she's having a lot of anxiety and it was coming out in a lot of behavioral things. And the school just kept looking at her behavior as if there was something going wrong at her house, like implying that there's some abuse or implying that there's some problem in her home. And that's why she was acting like that. And, and they, they were, weren't willing to look at what they were doing wrong in the school that was influencing how the child was feeling. And, and so that, that being so quick to judge black families and black children negatively 
and think that they're 100% right in doing so and then moving forward with a whole course of action based on those biased ideas is something that definitely needs to be interrupted, but we kept finding it in so many different stories. And isn't the saying, it says when you've met one child with autism, you've met one child with autism. So um, I know I've always heard, heard that. So when I'm speaking to someone about my child, a child that you are just getting to meet, meet believe me, because it's not that I mean, you know every it's and ends about your child, but I think you do know more about them than most people. And <laughs> I, I think that's important than listening, them listening and believing and trusting and not coming with a diagnosis. I think, I don't know, Veronica, the word you want to use, the epidemic, you know, it's just like once you hear this term, that's for every, you know, mm -hmm. everything, it becomes an epidemic. And so I just think allowing the parent to know their child and tell you what's going on. And for those um, uh, doctors or the mental health people to know that it's okay to listen and take advice from those who are actually experiencing it mm -hmm. or who are in front of you. <laughs> Judy, did you want to jump in? <laughs> um, yeah, I just, um, I just wish there was a way, you know, that 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 the medical community, which is understaffed and they're probably tired and burnt out because there's not enough and there's not enough, um, you know, uh, trust in your instincts, the ability to sit down and actually listen instead of have a diagnosis based on symptoms that were given over the phone or, you know, it just just something to shake people up and just go back to like when times were simpler and you had no other choice but to listen. It wasn't just a rush 15 minute hour appointment, tick tock, and then you're gone. I mean, if I was listened to uh, with my child and frankly, if I uh, pushed enough, I, I would have very much um, started the ball a lot sooner than I did. And I didn't like listen to the clues and the, the information that was right in front of me, but I also wasn't listened to um, talking to like my child's pediatrician. Like there's something a little off here, you know? Um, but yeah, that, that, you know, some sort of retraining or going back to, you know, the old school, listen, um, individual with individual attention not just a, a, a definition or a broad definition or a broad stereotype whether it's racial or sexual or whatever um you know stuff like that basically just stop look and listen <laughs> <laughs> oh, i like that <laughs> what are the primary findings of your research I think I think that 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 was the key finding that that there was so many similarities to the stories, no matter what the family structure, no matter what the kid, the age of the kid, the geographic location of the family. There were so many similarities, which to me points to to the fact that this is systemic. There's systemic racism that is really embedded in multiple systems that are fundamentally um, impacting families in really specific ways. Uh, that we think is really important for the broader field to listen to and understand, not in a piecemeal way, not like just in this particular area, that particular area, but all across the board. Um, there, there can't be so many similarities and stories across the board, across so many different families and different places without there being a real common connection. Um, and that, that, that really is systemic racism just impacting this at the intersection of, of disability, particularly autism. So. Thank you, Liz. <laughs> um, you know, when my uh, child was diagnosed, she was also um, diagnosed with ADHD. And I just looked at the pediatrician. I think He's retired now. So I think at the time he was in his 60s. And I just said about the ADHD part, I said, this didn't just come out the blue. 
in society. And it seems to be like really prevalent. I said, and I know it was around back in the day. I said, what did people do like in the 50s to help deal with the ADHD? Because there was no Adderall or Ritalin or anything around like that. Maybe some other things, but like really uh, grandfathered in medication. But I said, what did you, what did, what did you guys do back then? What did people do back then? He said two things, smoking and cigarettes. And both of those help. I'm I'm not uh, smoking and uh, coffee, caffeine. And in a way that, that it's in a, in a very generic way, it works a little bit similar to the stimulants that you give to somebody with ADHD. And I'm just wondering, like, unofficially, I said, you know, what do people do with people who had autism back in the day? And they just hit them away, kept them at home, uh, or, you know. They weren't diagnosed, Judy, or they were diag. They weren't, they were systematically like, like black people weren't getting that autism diagnosis. They were being diagnosed with behavior disorder and conduct, conduct disorder and all of that. Um, you know, because there's a lot of, misperceptions about who could have autism as a diagnosis um, back then. But I know, I know. Uh, it wasn't even a term back in the 50s. It was learning disabilities, emotional disturbance, and re- mental retardation. Those were the three terms back in the day. They didn't really have anything. And there's like variations of the three, you know. Those were probably so. the most popular ones, maybe. Yeah, but I don't know. That's all. How are Black students impacted by the Asperger's or Autism Spectrum Disorder label? In what ways is the label a form of trauma in and of itself? I think that um, when not learning um, that they have autism or Asperger's or milder functioning autism, um, or not just necessarily learning, but just being talked about in the family um, and then brought up later on in life is maybe a shocker to them. I don't know that it's necessarily traumatic unless someone is making it such a big deal, like if someone's being bullied um, or uh, someone's you know, the, the, the staff is talking differently around the kid or, um, and, uh, or treating them differently. I think that the, the traumatizing thing is that I I don't think it's, um, learning that they have this, but, um, but what do I know? I don't have autism. I don't know how necessarily, you know, like how my son feels who's nonverbal or how my daughter feels who is very, very verbal. But when I did talk to her about her having autism, um, she, she didn't seem to, she's eight and um, she didn't seem too shaken about it. She just, you know, asked me a lot of questions and I answered all of her questions. Um, but, you know, and that's just my family. I, I don't know how other families are dealing with it and if other kids are traumatized, but then she's not in middle school, you know, and um, and I think that that's something that might, you know, come up later but by her being eight and knowing about it now. I think that kind of helps her to become her best advocate when she um, goes to middle school. I don't think it's something that's... And, and that's just my personal opinion. You know, other families might feel differently. People on the spectrum might feel differently, but that's just how it has happened in my family. Um, and I think um, as far as with my child, um, when I explained it to him, he was okay. I think it's more trauma society than it was for um, him and us. I mean, I'd rather know what the diagnosis is than guess. So even though I didn't want that to be it, I found relief. At least I knew what it was and I could target it. But being out in our world was a different thing because people treat them different um, or make them feel different. Um, so I think that's more the trauma is with society than it was with me or my child. Yeah, I, I, the the trauma, it, it's almost like, you know, the way it's the question is structured. It's like, 
the label is is the, is a form of trauma and and really it's just who the the child is one aspect of who they are you know they're tall and um you know a, a male or a female or or gender neutral or autistic you know and any number of things it's just part of who they are it's, so the label isn't the trauma like having an autism label isn't a trauma but it's how people react Mm -hmm. to the diagnosis, mm -hmm. to the label, how they view um, people who have the label. Like if you look in the news, you see lots of stories around mass shootings. And if someone is, you know, showing up differently, they automatically say this person has autism. So it's almost like they're linking, mm -hmm. you know, uh, murderous tendencies to being <laughs> autistic. Right. And then they have a certain idea of what that autism looks like. Oh, you don't care about people and you're, you're mm -hmm. cold and all of those kinds of things. Like, it's just this whole idea that 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 society has that's very negative around the autism label mm -hmm. that can create traumatic experiences rather than being you know having autism as an aspect of who you are. Can I well, jump yeah. in? Go ahead, Judy. Oh, yeah. Um, I had a little. I had one of my uh, experiences that was burned into my memories that when my daughter was about six years old, six or seven years old. And I was talking to one of the moms of one of the girls in the in the class, and I just happened to mention that my daughter had autism, and she had a look of vague disgust. She took an involuntary step backwards, and after that, she she would barely even say acknowledge my presence whenever we would see each other picking up our kids from school. And, um, and then before that I had her number and we would chat what's for homework, you know, what, how did your child do on this? Is our child a group, you know, a group, but that was traumatic for me. And as far as my daughter's concerned, she's older now she's um, a teenager and she's not ashamed. She's not necessarily proud of it, but she is not ashamed. And she, she's, she's very strong, you know, although she's quite sensitive. And, um, but, yeah. you know, it bothered me more than it bothered her because she's had, you know, she's lived with that all her life, you know, and my, my husband, um, is a mildly autistic. So there was always a possibility of having, um, a potentially, uh, a child that has autism. So I was like a little bit mentally prepared, but with no experience, but, you know, it was just that one thing that really burned, burned me. And I didn't like that. And, and, you know, this is like, I don't know, 10 years ago or something more than that. I mean, less than that. So I just want to make that comment. Um, if I could just say really quickly too, when I was teaching, um, talking to my son about having autism, I explained to him, like some people have diabetes, some people have blood pressures, some people have this or that you have autism. And so now the way that I look at it, that the way that society, and I just thought of this now, I might need to scratch this out later, but um, <laughs> I'm just thinking how society, if you're going to treat them different with autism, then there should also be the diagnosed with a narrow mind. <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, because if your mind is narrow because you can't accept somebody, then that needs to be another diagnosis. I probably would rather have a diagnosis of autism than one with having a narrow mind. Right. How can churches respond differently to congregants on the autism spectrum? What kinds of problems and challenges manifest in religious settings for individuals on the autism spectrum and for their families and parents? How can clergy respond in different ways than they previously have? Can I say something? Yeah, Veronica sure, and please. Sarah, you guys were going to jump yeah. on this one. Yeah. Um, just from how I've seen things happen in the past, I think that the, the church um, needs to um, not... You can pray for something. You can, you can pray that someone will, you know, will walk again or talk again or, or, you know, will be able to, you know, do whatever. Um, and you can pray for someone with autism. 
um, there is no cure for autism, but there is managing autism. Managing autism is what I pray for. I pray for my son to be able to manage his autism. Um, and I think that the person needs to remember the same thing, that you are saying that this per something that's part of this person that they were born with, something that's not going away, it, you know, it goes away. I think focusing on praying for um, manageability to be able to function in life, to support and take care of themselves as much as possible, um, just to just to be able to manage the, the the symptoms of autism is what they need to focus on. If they could focus on that, that would be really really great. That would be great for the families. But instead of, you know, praying, oh, I, you know. It, goes away, you know, I just know, because then you have the families giving their hopes up of the autism going away rather than focusing on the symptoms of the autism and managing the symptoms of the autism and and making sure that the child, you know, my, my thing with, with it is um, my husband and I will not live forever. We will not be able to take care of our son forever. But at some, you know, and, and at some point he's going to have to go to a place maybe or be with family. But I want him to be able to do some things for himself. Um, and so we're always constantly um, educating him and teaching him um, how to take care of himself and things like that. So I think that if the church could focus on things like that and pray for the family to be able to help them manage um rather than getting rid of the autism because um it's just to me it's it's giving the family hope of getting rid of it i think we need to learn to manage it it's here and we need to embrace it it's not ugly it's just something that we you know and some society some people in society are living with it and don't even know it mm -hmm. so it's not a matter of getting rid of it Mm -hmm. well, I feel that. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Tara. Um, I, I mean, I think, um, for me, um, nothing wrong with praying for. It. If it's God's will, it will go away. If not, we'll deal with how it is. My issue, as far as, um, with my son wanting to get him baptized, and he was not they that pastor would not baptize him because he had autism. Because he didn't know if he could confess the things for himself that was required to be baptized. That was just the issue that I had. Um, I was baptized when I was five. I didn't know the real and true meaning of being baptized. I learned as I grew older, but I didn't know it at the time. We were taught what to do, what to say. We went to Bible class, uh, Sunday school, and all of that stuff and learned, but we were not denied to be baptized because we were five. Um, my son is not as verbal as I would like, but he's verbal enough to get what he needs us to know. But that didn't mean that he didn't know what baptism meant. But someone else who had the authority was able to deny that because of what they thought. Mm. Right. I just want to say one little thing. I just want to say I wish um, churches nowadays, temples, mosques, whatever you want to say, um, would truly practice what they preach yeah. in terms of community and love. And mm -hmm. if, you know, people could gather together and embrace people of all kinds, uh, no matter what religion you are, um, I think that would be awesome you know at least that you'll know they have a supportive community outside of the family and that's all what role do siblings play in relating to brothers and sisters on the autism spectrum can you share any stories or anecdotes my daughter there's two years difference between my daughter and my son when he was two and she was four you know, she loves animals. All my, my whole family, we love animals. But my daughter especially loved animals. And um, they would be walking down the street and she would like run up to a dog. And my son 
who has does not have autism would go up and spread his arms and say, nope, you know, because he knew you had to let the dog come to you or sniff you. And, and you can't just run up to a dog. They might want to attack you. And, you know, especially when you're little. And, you know, I think siblings are supportive. They're, uh, there's part of the support, family support system, um, especially if they don't, um, you know, I don't know. There's just, there's something, you know, they, they're the first ones to accept their siblings and teach them like um, in a positive way, how you should expect treatment of others. And if you do not get treated like that, or you have a, a you call it like someone who's able to tell you that's not cool what that person did to you or said to you, you know, because with, when you have autism, you, you don't have those social cues as well as, you know, the average person walking down the street, but the sibling can help discern that. Um, for me, my experience in my family. Oh, I'm sorry. That's okay. I'm done. Oh, okay. For me, um, my son, he grew up with his cousins, um, his sister, he and his sister are 10 years apart. Um, so they were always, you know, um, with him and seeing about him and um, there was one time we were at a family function um, in um, out of town and uh, um, some little kids weren't being so nice to him and um, his little cousin said do you want me to teach him a lesson and I said well we're not gonna do that but we can talk to them <laughs> mm. <laughs> and it was just that they didn't understand what was going on with him. Uh, they, his cousins, his immediate cousins, his first cousins, they were there for him. And then when his sister came along, um, I suspected um, her of having autism. Well, she didn't have a diagnosis at the time, but she would still take care of him. She would push the um, the um, his plate up to him at the table. Um, she would put his juice in front of him. and um, And now she even still, you know, when he wants to giggle and laugh and um, things like that, she'll join in with them and just, she, she knows because, you know, by me telling her that she has autism, just like her, her brother, but hers is a little different because everybody's different. Um, she's, she's, she, she gets it. And so um, I just think they have a really special relationship because when they're sitting on the couch on their iPads or phones or something like that, she leans against him and he's okay with it. He doesn't let me hug him all the time. He gives me a good night kiss every single night. But hugging, he's like, uh-uh. But he'll let his little sister lean against him when they're having their iPad time. And I think it's just lovely. Oh. I think sometimes it has a lot to do, I mean, with the parents and how mm. you allow your kids to react. Um, my children only have two, they're seven years different. Um, before I knew the youngest one, yes, he used to get away with things after we found out, but I always told my oldest son, no matter what, because you have a brother with autism, it's not going to stop you from doing anything that you want to do or can do, that we allow you to do. Um, I think sometimes parents allow it to be a, a block um, in between and that. But he, I think once he knew that, it was not going to stop you from playing baseball, from doing whatever, or going to college or whatever you were going to do. Um, he was not going to stop you from doing that. But I also think... Um, it made it a little easier for my uh, son during school because every report was on autism. He lived in the house where he learned it, so he never had to go research anything. So <laughs> every grade that he went to, it was a different report about autism. And, and I mean, that's a true story, but I thought, you know, that was pretty funny that that yeah. made it easy until we had to say, you know, it's more things to learn about because you knew all of that, the stuff that you were writing about at that time. So let's see. <laughs> what are the difficulties involved in black parents processes of self-education regarding autism spectrum disorder? Uh, One of the things that kept coming up over and over again is that, um, the professionals that, that many of the black parents interface with, whether it's the pediatrician or the 
this educator or the the behavior therapist or the psychologist um over and over again we kept hearing that they weren't getting given they weren't given the information that they needed to be able to know what to do or to know where to access resources where to apply for a program to get special you know equipment at home all of those things it, it's not easily um, accessible mm -hmm. those resources and information isn't easily accessible and uh and so that that requires uh, a parent to do like double and triple duty you know they're supporting their children they're supporting their family they're probably working and also trying to educate themselves mm -hmm. uh, rather than being given the mm. information from the beginning mm -hmm. um, and that takes a lot of effort and energy and, and time when they could be spending it in more productive ways it would sure be be nice that when you go and as a uh, medical provider, as you are prepared to throw out a diagnosis that you would have some literature right there to give that parent to look up support groups or whatever it would be um, mm -hmm. then um, besides waiting in because back in the day when my son was diagnosed there was three and four year waiting list to get the ABA help you know well, what can we do in the interim? We've got three years. There should be some information that you can pass out and give or support, definitely a support group, because that was one of the better things that happened with me to get a band, uh, uh, into a support group. And from that, met, met these young ladies um, here. Um, but them, as you're prepared to throw out a diagnosis, don't just throw it out there. Send us some um, literature that can help us. Um, learn right at that time the process is the difficulty um in processing um it's just you know life is just busy and there's a lot and some families you know some families find it hard to believe you know um families are listening to doctors and listening to the family members i was told that my son was um gonna he's gonna come out of it and he's gonna be just fine you don't have to worry about it as soon as he goes to school he'll be good talking and fine and um it's 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 hard to when you actually find out for sure that your kid is on the spectrum it's hard to it's hard to figure out, well, who's telling what what is the truth about this whole thing? Um, but I had to balance it out and there were more people telling me that he was on the spectrum than there were people telling me that, you know, he you know, was just gonna he's just gonna come out of it. Um and then just, you know, have work and some parents are going to school and some parents are working two jobs and um and just have other family members maybe they're taking care of parents you know it's just it's a lot to 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 process all of this information and it's just it's just hard um can you explain the image on the cover page of this book why did you select it can you describe it for us what does it mean so um, the illustrator, the, the cover was illustrated by Dominique Duval-Jilk, and she um, provided the following ex explanation. Um, she said that there are different families, each doing typical family things. So the message is that families with an autistic child are just like any other family. She said the, the children who have uh, color clothes because some of it are silhouettes and some of them are children with colored clothes. She said the colored clothes represents the autistic children in each black family structure. And then the larger image, there's a larger image of the of a, of a boy represents the fact that the majority of black autistic children are boys. And she said he's beautiful because all of our children are beautiful. And then she said you also have different types of families featured. So you have a single mom, you have a, a two parent uh, family, you have an autistic girl, right? So it's not just like they're only autistic boys. So she featured lots of diversity in the family. 
And then there's an image of a mom in purple who's encouraging three of her sons, one of whom is an autistic child, and but she's encouraging all of them and she's depicting all of them playing together. So that whole sibling piece. And then she said, these images all represent the resistance against stereotypes and beliefs that autistic children and their families are different from others and therefore less. It represents the persistence because they're there, they're not going anywhere. And it represents the resilience because they're moving forward, living and loving and being happy no matter um, what the family composition or the, the circumstances are. That's awesome. That's beautiful. That's awesome. <laughs> that is. That's awesome. so beautiful. Mm -hmm. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And that's sad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. What lessons does your book convey to teachers and principals in schools with large numbers of Black students on the spectrum and their parents? What can those on the front lines of this matter do differently in addressing the autism spectrum in the Black community? Listen. Mm -hmm. uh, listen. Um, oh, geez. Yeah. Acceptance? Mm -hmm. Listen. Um, I remember... Um, um, and there was an experience in the in the book where um, a teacher had stated that she was um, more of an educator. She was an educator, and 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 basically referenced that she knew she was in special education, and she knew more than that parent. And uh -huh. they need to know that it's not who knows what is combining the information that we have together to have a better outcome for uh, the child. Mm -hmm. But just for the record, the parent probably knows more. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think I mean, it's, it's collaboration. It's, it's, it's yeah. like parents, like, you know, the schools and the teachers and the administrators need to want to work with families and not set up this confrontational relationship. Mm -hmm. And then, and then they also need to, you know, again, address the biases that many people have and, and then really support inclusion. Because mm -hmm. a lot of the kids with autism are not included in, in, in general classes. Yeah. Oh, yeah not. Or general, <laughs> or, you know, or, or, the or they make milestones. They're, 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 they're not included. And, and, and milestones, I remember a couple of times of that happening. Um, mm -hmm. For with graduations and stuff, they weren't included. And you, as a parent going, and bring in people from out of town and everybody is going to support this child <laughs> and their name is barely called. <laughs> you know, they, they would have descriptions. I'll never forget about this kid like to do this one. And every kid that went by this kid, he was on the basketball team. This one liked to dress and this one. But when that particular kid went by, they called his name and that was it. Mm. Very heartbreaking. Heartbreaking yes. for me as a spectator. It was very heartbreaking mm -hmm. because I care, you know, I just care about people. I don't like people's feelings being hurt. Um, I don't even look at the if there's a disability or not because that, that that's just me, I, you know. And for you to do something like that was a very hurtful thing. And they never acknowledged it. And I remember... It bothered me so bad that I went up to the principal and, and thought about it. They told me, well, maybe next year I could come back <laughs> and help out with this procedure, which was just the answer for, well, no, I'm going to stop because I was going to say something I know needed to be edited, but it was an appropriate answer. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't like the fact that when it's time for school orientation, they've got the big packet coming out to the home and the dates and the this and the mm -hmm. that be doing. And you get to the orientation, and there's nothing about your kid. It's all about the regular ed. It's like, mm -hmm. well, why are we even here? Why isn't there an orientation for our special ed kids? Mm -hmm. Why are we um, being told that we can go to a different room or we can come back another day or have a private conversation with the teacher. No, you need to take yeah. up all the time that you're taking mm -hmm. up with kids for the special ed kids too. Mm -hmm. That is just not okay. It's yeah. not. Orientation. Go ahead. Go ahead. But didn't they have you sign that paper for your kid with a disability? That always got me. 
that I would not bring a gun or firearm to school. Right. You didn't include them in that general coverage, but then how you know they know what this, you know, yeah, firearm and that stuff. But they have to sign for that, even if they don't have a signature. You can draw blood and they'll take DNA to make sure that's you, but you have to verify that they wouldn't, you know, bring a gun or disobey any rule. It's just a lot of craziness. It's like the the exclusion is, yeah. is all the way across the board. Yeah. It's really unbelievable. Yeah. Like they're not necessarily seen as part of the school if they don't, if they show up as being more obviously autistic, you know, especially. So... And also, I mean, um, I don't know if this was mentioned earlier, but we also need support and help with um, outside of the community and the churches and the schools and the parents, uh, support with law enforcement and the judicial system, you know, lawyers and stuff like that, or, or whoever determines uh, an outcome for your child. You know, we, we need a lot of support there um, in all kinds of aspects. That would be nice to get some training and stuff what are you working on now as your current project what are you working on next as your subsequent research so i'll jump on this one um we are we one of the things that came up in the book was um this idea of as our children are aging uh they particularly our our black male children uh, on with autism diagnosis as they age, their potential engagement or interaction with law enforcement is, is a reality. And so we're looking at um, a project where we're going to do participatory research on looking, uh, better understanding what are the experiences of families as they navigate interactions with law enforcement and their children as well, and their young adult children. And are there ways to support keeping the children safe in those interactions, but also are there ways to kind of inform the policies and protocols that law enforcement officers employ in a situation at the intersection of race and autism in particular. Wow. So when they see a black male acting in a particular way, what are what are they likely to do? So that that is something that we're we're visioning and lifting up and looking for funding to support. And um and and in the next future, you know, couple of years, we would have something that we can share with the broader public about that. Mm -hmm. Thank you, thank you for that research project, and thank you for everything you will undergo to bring it into reality for us. Thank you, thank you, Ari. This my pleasure really and my honor. Oh, thank you, Ari. You're wonderful. <laughs> thank you to our listeners. I am Ari Barbalat, your host on the New Books and African American Studies channel on the New Books Network podcast. Today, I've been in dialogue with Elizabeth Drame, Tara Adams, Veronica Nolden, and Judy Nardi. We have been discussing their new book, The Resistance, Persistence, and Resilience of Black Families Raising Children with Autism, published in New York by Peter Lang, 2020. Thank you.